As most of you have discovered on this second day of this retreat, this practice that we are undertaking here in order to awaken to the fullness of our life and who and what we are is quite demanding. And essentially it's a practice and the process of coming to know things as they are. And in that, we come to know who we are. We come to see our uh, qualities that are admirable and those that aren't so enjoyable or desirable. We begin to see the, uh, our strengths and our limitations. Essentially, it is a confrontation with our personality. Our personality being those fixed, uh, habitual patterns of relating to the world, which have served us so well to get us where we are today. But in this confronting of who we are and this desire and interest to see things as they are, we will, in due time, come to see all that we have avoided, all that we have denied, all that we have feared, all that has shamed us, humiliated us, all that we've wanted and not been able to get, all that we've had to endure in pain. Because this is the way things are, or this is the way things have been for us. And as we come to look deeply uh, at this structure of who we are, we will confront these things. So it's reasonable to understand why it is we have so much difficulty in staying awake, in paying attention, and why we meet such difficult emotions and mental states during the day of doing something so simple as just sitting and walking. And so, since it's inevitable that we are going to meet these difficult times in our practice, we're going to meet these uh, obstructions, these hindrances, these difficulties, these scary, these unknown things, we should learn how to, uh, how to relate to them how to deal with them. We should learn to consider them our teachers rather than our enemies. And if we can learn that they are an essential part of the path of awakening, then we needn't fear them and we needn't personalize them. Because these difficult states of mind and these difficult energies come to all of us at different times in our practice. When we struggle against them, we wear ourselves out, we tire ourselves unnecessarily. But when we can learn to see them as they are, to recognize their appearance, to see how they move us in our day, in our practice, and when we can learn the appropriate tools for working with these difficult energies in the mind, then we can actually consider all of practice a great challenge and a great joy to see if we can awaken to all that we are. But in this practice, and in this process of uncovering all that we are, 
we need to be patient. We have to have respect for the qualities that we have developed in our life that have allowed us to survive to this point. Because it isn't easy. It's really difficult in order to get to a place in life where we even want to come to a retreat and want to look more deeply to see what is cooking beneath the surface of our life. And we've all had to develop tremendously skillful and powerful survival tools in order to do that. So we need to be patient with the tenacity with which we hang on to those qualities of mind which have allowed us to be here. They may have been necessary for survival and to get us here, and we may now find them a hindrance, an obstruction. But rather than condemn ourselves for these qualities that have been so essential, we need to learn a new way of relating to the situation or relating to them. And in order to do that, not only do we need patience and a non-condemning attitude, but we need perseverance. We need to be as persistent and persevering as those habits. And that requires a tremendous commitment a tremendous level of confidence, more than any of us believe we have, but not so much that we can't meet it. When these difficult energies come to the mind and we find ourselves frustrated, disappointed, angry, in despair, helpless, overwhelmed. We should remember that that's not who and all we are. And in that we need to soften our judgment of ourself for feeling frustrated, for feeling angry feeling shamed. But we should consider that in our culture we have been trained, we have been conditioned by our parents, certainly by our school and by all other uh, institutions in our society. We have been trained to learn how to solve problems. That's a large part of our educational training. And so we are presented with, time and time again, uh, situations that we have to analyze, evaluate, pick and choose, and make the right choice, or at least make a choice, to move us in some direction that we choose to go. And so that pattern uh, in our mind, that conditioned habit in our mind of evaluating and choosing and picking and choosing and deciding and saying yes to this and no to that and liking this and and not liking that, that is a very, very deeply conditioned habit in our mind. And so, of course, when we start looking at our mind and how it's relating to what's for lunch and the perfume that the person beside us is wearing, we are going to be analyzing and picking and choosing and judging and evaluating and deciding and reacting. That's our conditioning. We can't avoid that. But we don't have to act blindly in response to that picking and choosing and analyzing and deciding. With awareness and with mindfulness, we can choose a new way of responding that condition. This is the place of mindfulness and this is the space of freedom. 
The Buddha's teaching the understanding that allows one to realize freedom for themselves is pointing to much more than just how to get it together and how to feel comfortable with our life. It's pointing to much more than that. And so when we look at our practice, when we look at our uh, investment in our practice. We have got to see that it's not only to be comfortable. If all you want to do is be comfortable, you won't stay long. You know, you'll leave after the first 20 minutes, maybe. Because a lot of this practice is not comfortable. And so there has to be some other greater or subtler reason for sitting through all of this discomfort. And we have to understand what our motivation is. What is it that's brought us here? Why why are we here? Why are we doing this? What is motivating us to endure this discomfort? Psychic discomfort, emotional discomfort, let alone physical discomfort. We need to be clear what what is motivating us. We also need to be clear in what our intention is in being here. The intention being a variable thing that is not insignificant in our practice. And early in the day, or early in the retreat, or early in the sitting, we may have a very clear intention to be mindful, to be with the breath, to be with the movement of the legs, whatever it is. And 20 minutes into the sitting, our intention is, I hope the bell rings quick. (laughs) You know? And so our intention is a variable thing, and we we have to begin to pay attention to our intention. What are we doing here? What are we doing? Not just here on this retreat, but here in this moment. Why am I bothering to pay attention? And in order to really uh, move ourselves through this retreat and through this process of awakening, it takes an unwavering commitment. Of course, our commitment wavers, but I say it takes an unwavering commitment because Uh, You know, one step forward and two steps back doesn't get you anywhere. And so each time you feel your commitment to awakening, wavering, don't let it pass unnoticed. But reawaken your commitment to awakening and to to the grandest purpose you have or the noblest motivation you have in being here. It's helpful in all of this, in all of this uh, coming to see the way things are. It's really helpful to have two attitudes. One is, I don't know, and the second is, I wonder what it is. Because we really don't know yet what it's all about. We have an idea and it's got us this far, but we don't know what's coming in this next moment. Unless you believe that the last breath is just like the next one, or the next one will be just like the last one, consider again that there will be a last one. And so it's helpful in all of this, with difficult as well as with easeful practice, to really keep an open, uh, curious mind. 
a mind that is willing to explore and to see things that haven't been seen before. This moment hasn't existed before. And so whatever you experience right now is new, totally new, if we can be there for it. But as you have noticed during these days, we fall into very deeply conditioned patterns of reaction and response to situations that are habitual and are quite blinding, that pull us out of the present moment or that obscure the present moment from our attempt to see clearly and to be with it in an open, fresh way. Tonight I want to speak about these uh, visitors to the mind, these qualities of mind that come and um, disturb our practice, so to speak. They're known in, uh, in, in the practice as the hindrances, well-known visitors to the mind, which probably all of us have discovered today. Sleepiness and dullness, very common on the first couple of days of the retreat. Doubt, wondering whether you should actually be here, or whether the teachers know what they're talking about, or whether you can actually do the practice. Aversion or disliking of your experience. Did anybody dislike anything today? <laughs> this is a cloud that comes to the mind, making it difficult to be with things just as it is. So too is restlessness, that agitated state of mind which makes it impossible to sit still. And the last or the fifth uh, hindrance is craving or the wanting mind, attachment, the mind that wants some other experience than what's happening right now. Well, they, they, these, these, these mental states are all so familiar and We've all experienced them so many times today, I shouldn't have to say anything about them. But I'm going to, anyway. <laughs> because I have found, even in, in, in my more than 20 years of practice, that I need reminding. Yes, we all know what the hindrances are, of course. But I need reminding that, oh yeah, I just spent the day in restlessness and didn't recognize it. Or I've just been caught in aversion and have been trying to uh, justify my way out of it all day. But when someone can point clearly to the quality of mind, aversion or desire or restlessness, and let me see or point to the... Um, the nature of this, this state of mind being like a filter on the mind. When the filter of aversion comes down over the mind, everything we see we dislike. When the filter of desire or wanting comes down over the mind, everything we see we want. If these filters, if these mental states are conditioned, meaning we have learned to respond this way to these situations, then we can unlearn that response. And it is precisely because they are a learned response that we can unlearn it. And that unlearning is a deconditioning of our mind, deconditioning of our mental habits a transformation of our personality. All of these qualities of mind, all of these hindrances, these, these visitors to the mind that obstruct clear seeing arise due to not seeing things as they are. Some 
amount of delusion or confusion or ignorance of the way things are. Mindfulness is the attempt to see things clearly as they are. And so mindfulness, of course, is the direct and universal application that opposes every one of these obstructing tendencies of mind. But because we're not kind of universally mindful, we fall into confusion and delusion at times, and these difficult mental states arise and we are kind of uh, entranced by them, or we're kind of uh, cast under the spell of some mood, you know, kind of frustrated, walking around disappointed or depressed, kind of moody today. A mood is nothing more than a mental state that we haven't seen clearly yet. And when these filters drop over the mind, when they are unseen and unknown, unnoted, they tend to fixate a certain sense of who we are. I'm angry. And I'm going to stay angry until I see that I am angry. And see that anger is just that filter over the mind. But that sense of I becomes quite fixed, quite solid. In the path of practice, in this practice of awakening, we go through and we learn technique for how to relate to these different qualities of mind. Initially, of course, we have to recognize these qualities of mind. Until we recognize them, we're just wallowing in them, just caught, lost, quite uh, entranced by them. And the first shift in the relationship to them is when we can begin to recognize them as being present. But merely by recognizing doesn't mean that they disappear or they go away, or that we're somehow suddenly comfortable with them. In fact, maybe the most painful part of practice is when we have enough mindfulness to recognize which hindrance is present and not enough mindfulness to see through it. And so we're angry, and we know we're angry, or we're frustrated, and we know we're frustrated, and can't do anything about it except try not to get caught or try not to act it out. Very difficult part of practice. And unfortunately, it's a long period of practice, (laughs) it seems, for most of us. But in time, as we learn to recognize the range of the manifestations of these qualities of mind, we can begin to accept them. And when I use the word accept, I mean to acknowledge that they're present, not accept in the term, in the sense of uh, welcoming them, but rather accept in the sense of acknowledging their presence without judgment. And then, when we can acknowledge their presence, accept them, we can open to them. And we can really begin to then investigate and discover what these experiences really are. What is frustration, really? What does it feel like? Where is it in the body? How does it move? What does it do to the quality of your thoughts? Not just frustration, but shame. What is the feeling of shame? Where is it in the body? What happens to it when you notice it and you be with it, when you open to it fully? Or desire, 
that hollow, empty spot in the belly or the chest that just says, feed me, feed me, feed me all the time. Mostly we see what we want. The bell to ring, you know, cookies for tea, uh, this car, that car, this person, that per- whatever, this activity. Rather than seeing the nature of desire or wanting itself, we see that which is wanted. This practice aims to turn that around and look carefully to see what the nature of wanting itself is. We've all experienced these feelings. But what do we really know about them? As we begin to recognize and open, accept them and open to them, we can begin to bring our mind back into balance so that the mind is not reacting so quickly, so strongly, and so habitually to that which is provoking that response or reaction. And we can bring the mind into balance by doing some reflection, by doing some um, replacement of difficult energies with more skillful energies, or by seeing clearly into their nature. And that is really what the insight practice is designed to do, is to see clearly into the nature of aversion or desire or restlessness. We're not just kind of putting aside aversion by developing a lot of loving-kindness. That is one way of handling aversion. But insight aims to not just put aside aversion, but to go into aversion or anger or hatred and see its very structure, its very nature. And as we learn to work with these different tools for uh, playing with these difficult mental states, we actually develop a big uh, meditator's toolkit, so to speak, so that when these difficult states of mind come, we don't fall into a trance, we don't get lost, we don't get victimized by them. And it takes skill in order to not, uh, to not, or to consistently be on guard uh, for them just as in learning any uh, new skill, it takes a lot of practice. So too with meditation. It takes a lot of practice learning how to skillfully deal with our difficult mental states. So I'll speak about each of them briefly to help you begin to recognize the manifestations of these hindrances, these obstructions, and to begin to have some tools for working with them in a skillful way. The first, and maybe the most common um, hindrance in the first few days of retreat is sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor being, of course, sleepiness, dullness, the uh, inability to just stay awake. And most of us have had some of that today. It's helpful to know that there are different kinds of, or different causes for this state or this condition (coughs) of sleepiness. One is just being sleepy. When we come to a retreat, many of us living our busy lives are way overextended and are really quite exhausted The only reason we're awake is because we keep stimulating ourselves. And when we come to retreat and we're in a kind of a sensory deprivation place and we don't have much to stimulate ourselves with, we realize how exhausted we are. And of course the tendency or the natural reaction is to sleep. And of course that's precisely the antidote for that kind of sleep, for that kind of sleepiness is to take a nap. That's good for the first couple days. 
of retreat. And now that we're a couple of days into the retreat, that's no longer an option. So we'll have to move on to the second um, kind of sleepiness, and that is the dullness that comes when practice becomes difficult or painful physically or mentally or psychically, emotionally. Because when it becomes difficult, when it becomes painful to pay attention, the mind wants to shut down. We don't want to see pain. We spend our lives avoiding it as much as possible. Running away from it, covering it up, denying it, you know, self-medicating, whatever it is that we do to avoid pain. And so, when we come here and we live with the precepts of no self-medicating, uh, and we meet pain, whether it's in the form of painful memories or in the form of, you know, knees and shoulders, the tendency is to deny it, avoid it, get away from it, fix it somehow, rather than just open to it. And so all of these responses of running away from pain tire us out. And so we spend, we find ourselves sleepy and dull and unable to be present with difficulty. A third kind or third source for the feeling of dullness and sleepiness is when the concentration and energy in the mind are out of balance. When we sit a lot, as we do on retreat, we sit a lot and we walk slow and we're not talking, we have a tendency to really slow down. And in the first couple of days, we encourage you to intentionally slow down. And later you'll see that it's hard to speed up. But anyway, in this slowing down process, the mind tends to calm down and get more focused and get a little more collected, but the energy tends to drop also. And when the concentration builds, and the stillness and the tranquility builds, the energy drops and we enter into a kind of a, a dreamlike state where there's not enough mental energy to stay awake with that degree of concentration. In any event, when we feel sleepy, the first line of defense is to recognize it. To just recognize the fact that we're sleepy. Now that sounds so obvious, but you will notice in yourself that sometimes you can be sitting and you can be struggling with sleepiness and bobbing and nodding, and you know, especially right after lunch and you're bobbing and nodding, and, you know, five minutes before the end of the sitting, you say, gosh, I'm really tired. Where have you been for 40 minutes? Caught in it, enmeshed in it, entranced or cast under the spell of sleepiness without really recognizing it. And it is possible, as you know, to be lost in sleepiness and not know it. The first task is to recognize it. And it's helpful when you recognize the movements and the symptoms of sleepiness to just turn on the bright lights that say, sleepiness is present. And then to use whatever tools, whatever techniques you know of in order to stay awake. And that can be sitting with your eyes open, helps let some light in, sitting a little straighter so that you're not so uh, comfortably slumped. Um, pulling on your earlobes, the Buddha said, was a good way of stimulating a little energy in the, in, in the, in the system. Uh, walking faster during walking periods can raise a little energy. We used to suggest that you use a little tiger bomb on the on the forehead or on the temples, but now we have this uh, uh, prohibition against strong smells. I'll talk more about that later. So, in any event, we don't want to 
use a nap as our first line of defense against sleeping, but rather really arouse our energy and our determination to really be present with things as they are. And if it's just sitting there and just keep recognizing that you're sleepy, sleepiness, 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 sleepiness. I have seen, and I'm sure others of you have seen, that in the space of a single note of sleepiness, the sleepiness can be put aside completely. We can be just struggling to stay awake, and bobbing and nodding and sleepy, sleepy, sleepy. <laughs> Wide awake. No more sleepiness. And it happens. Because each moment of mindfulness and awareness conditions the next. And in time, the mindfulness becomes stronger than the sleepiness. Puts it aside. For those of you who are really daring and really will accept any challenge, there's another way of dealing with sleepiness. And that is to go into it. I don't mean to go to sleep, <laughs> but I mean to actually feel sleepiness as mindfully as you can. That means getting really curious. What, where, what is sleepiness? Where am I feeling it? Where do you feel sleepiness? In the head? In the belly? In the hands? Where? where? Eyes. Okay. When you feel sleepy in the eyes, get curious. What's that feel like? Which eye? Which part of the eye? Which left, right, inside, outside, where? And what's the quality from one moment to the next? If you get curious enough about tracking the experience of sleepiness, you won't fall asleep. You won't. If you're that curious to really discover what the nature of sleepiness really is, curiosity and sleepiness can't coexist. And that's really the key to, to um, overcoming or effectively learning to work with sleepiness, and that is engaging your mind. Again, because sleepiness is really a dulling and a disengaging of the mind. And so, any antidote to sleepiness is going to require it re-engaging the mind. And curiosity is a good way to do it. To get really curious. What is sleepiness? second hindrance or obstruction or filter that drops over the mind uh, at times during practice is the filter of doubt. Doubt is a really subtle mental state, much subtler than sleepiness or aversion or desire. It's a, a, a quality of mind that sneaks in like this. I wonder if I should be doing this retreat. Maybe I should be practicing metta instead of insight. Um, I, don't, I, I wonder if I should walk now or sit again. Or maybe I should have a cup of tea. Or, mm. I like the instructions that Stephen gave better than the ones Michelle gave. I think I'll do No, maybe I, I wonder. Uh, uh, mm. <laughs> See where you are now? Stuck. You're like the traveler at the crossroads in a foreign country, comes to the fork in the road and there's no sign. What do you feel like? Uh. <laughs> and so until we make a decision to go left or right, we just sit still. Well, that's what it's like in practice. We just can't decide, so we just don't do anything. Or we have doubt. Uh, uh, I often hear people say, oh, I don't know if I can do it. Well, who's going to tell you if you can do it? 
I'm not going to be able to tell you. The person beside you is not going to be able to tell you. Stephen isn't going to tell you. Nobody can tell you except you yourself. And it's not you telling yourself, it's you doing it yourself. So that's really a red herring. There is no such thing as self-doubt. But doubt is a, because it is so um, subtle, advocate. to this condition of indecision and confusion, it's very difficult to see. It's very difficult to notice. And so, the first, again, the first line of defense when doubt is present is to begin to recognize it. So if you find yourself standing at the bulletin board not quite sure whether to go in the hall to sit because the bell just rang or to go get another cup of tea, recognize doubt. This is indecision. This is what doubt is. And when that quality, when that filter drops over the mind, we forget to pay attention. We think we've got to get, get to the answer. We think we've got to get the answer before we can do something. But the something that needs to be done is to recognize that doubt is present. Again, if we can first acknowledge that doubt is present, then we can begin to open to it and begin to investigate it. And investigate it means to feel it knowingly. We've all experienced doubt. What does it feel like? Again, where is it felt in the body? Where, and, and when you do find its location, what happens to it? When you begin to feel doubt, you know, doubt, uh, maybe it's this quivering here in the chest. Okay? So you feel this quivering. What happens to that feeling? When you can sustain your attention on it, you know, you connect with it, you, 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 you've engaged your mind with this experience of doubt, and you can sustain your attention on it, what happens to it? Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? Does it change location? Does it change quality? Does it disappear gradually? Does it disappear quickly? Do you get bored with it? Is it fascinating? Only you can answer that question, those questions. But in the process of answering those questions, you will be practicing effectively. Arousing that sense of curiosity or that, that, that wish to know the way things are is what overcomes doubt. Sustaining your attention on whatever's happening overcomes the indecision as to what it actually is. Because ultimately, we do, we are here to discover the way things are. Anything else will be too easily satisfied. And so, doubt too has to be known as it is. Or sleepiness has to be known as it is. Not to avoid it, not to get rid of it, not to somehow think, oh, I've got to put my practice on hold until I'm not doubtful anymore. Good luck. It doesn't happen that way. You have to deal, you have to engage the doubt itself by connecting with it, feeling, acknowledging it, feeling it, and seeing what happens to it, seeing how it moves once you get engaged with it, once you get in touch with it and stay with it. So doubt is the second of the hindrances or obstructions to the mind. The third hindrance I want to speak about is aversion. Aversion has many forms. Maybe the most dramatic is hatred. Or a close second is anger. But there are subtler forms of aversion that we meet in practice which it's helpful to begin to recognize also. 
And these are a sense of disappointment, frustration, depression, boredom, sometimes fear. All of these being movements away from experience. When we're frustrated by our practice, you know, we're sitting, we're not getting anywhere, just can't get connected to the breath and nothing else is happening and oh, and we get kind of frustrated. What is that really? What, what, what's the nature of frustration? It's really not... It's a, it's a movement away from what actually is. And if we can just kind of uh, see the fact of frustration there, the filter of frustration, and say, okay, frustrated, okay, well, I'm frustrated with what isn't, so what is? What really is happening? And can I get in touch with that? Because if I can, there won't be any frustration. And the, the fact of what is existing at that moment is the experience of frustration itself. And so, we turn to frustration itself, the experience of frustration, and say, what is this? Where do I feel it? What does frustration actually feel like? But we need to recognize, we need to recognize that we're feeling frustrated. When we do, then we can open to it. Then we can begin to feel it then we can begin to explore it or investigate it or uh, get curious about it and discover the way it really is. Not only frustration, disappointment, anger, depression, boredom. We have avoided these feelings as much as possible throughout our lives because they are so unpleasant. They are extremely unpleasant, as you may notice. And we'll do anything to keep from feeling bored. We we, we, we will stimulate ourselves with all sorts of unskillful activities just so we don't feel bored or just so we don't feel that we are such a worthless person. You know, that that feeling of emptiness or worthlessness or despair that comes sometimes uh, creeping into our lives. Very unpleasant, physically, physically, very unpleasant, mentally or emotionally, extremely unpleasant. And our reactions and our habits, our tendency, our conditioning in this life has been, when unpleasantness appears, push it away. Turn away from it. And we turn away by anger and aversion, frustration, disappointment. This practice says, great, that's the way it's been, that's not the way it is. And so we have to learn to, to, to Accept the challenge of awakening to that which is unpleasant. And to accept it with some, with some joy, with some um, curiosity, some uh, utter and extreme interest to know what unpleasantness is all about. And when we, when we can cultivate that quality of fascinated interest when we can become so wrapped up in what we're doing we, 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 we can discover that uh, rapture then and that enraptment that curiosity that is so enlivening and brings such a joy and such a, uh, a sparkle to our life even when what we're caught up with and enwrapped in is unpleasant. 
my teacher used to uh, kind of tease me uh, when I got to the place in practice where I had to really confront a lot of unpleasantness in in the body in the mind and <clears throat> and I had a lot of interest and I was really curious I, was, I had a lot of I was very gung-ho at the time and it sets up this uh, uh, kind of a paradoxical situation in our experience where the experience of pain is pleasurable. And he used to say, did you ever have a massage? He said, a really deep massage where they really get in there and they hit all those high knots that are so painful. It's really pleasant, isn't it? It is. Somehow it is pleasantly painful or painfully pleasant. Well, so too with joy in the mind, joy in practice. When one is so curious to know what is going on in the way things are, pain is no obstacle. Because the joy of knowing is so strong. But it's important in dealing with pain to recognize discomfort as opposed to disliking it. Discomfort is one thing, you know, that's the knees, the back, the emotions, whatever it is. The discomfort is one thing. The disliking of it is something altogether different. And the disliking of it is unnecessary suffering. The discomfort is just what it is due to its own conditions. The disliking of it is our choice. And when we can begin to get curious about the nature of discomfort, we can put aside our disliking of it and not suffer unnecessarily. Pain is a good object, as I mentioned to some of you this morning. Pain is a good object in meditation because when you have a pain in the knee or the back or the shoulder in your sitting, your mind doesn't wander. Did you notice? It just goes right there and just stays just like, oh my God. <laughs> you know? To the degree that you can stay present with that experience, painful as it is, the mind does get concentrated. It gets focused. It gets collected. However, when the energy, when your mental energy is weak and you don't have the energy to be with and open to the pain, the discomfort, then the mind turns away and it gets, it's like a water dropped on a hot griddle. You know, it just goes, and the mind just away from the pain. Then the mind gets very fractured and scattered and, and uncollected. So at that point, you want to shift your posture. If it's, a, if it's a physical pain, shift your posture, get some relief, and go back to the breath, start over again. To the degree that pain or discomfort focuses the mind, use it. When it becomes unbearable due to the depletion of energy and it starts fracturing the mind or scattering the mind, shift your posture. Now, if the pain is mental, if it's an emotional pain, overwhelming fear or grief or sadness or whatever it is, humiliation, shame, then to the degree that you have the energy to stay with it and be with it and open to it and feel it, yes. But when it becomes overwhelming, when you feel that you're getting totally bowled over by it, give yourself a break. Go outside, give yourself some space, um, cut out of the schedule, go sit by the pond, be in nature, do that which um, gives you some emotional or psychic relief. This is strategic <coughs> retreat, strategic withdrawal. 
It's understanding your own limits, understanding how much energy you have and what energy you have for approaching pain and discomfort, and when you don't have that energy, to not beat yourself, to not condemn yourself for not having it. In time, it'll come again. But until then, do that which soothes yourself in the condition you're in. And if it's unplugged from the schedule, and go for a walk, okay. But be careful not to distract yourself with reading or talking. Because reading and talking, particularly, lead to the fourth hindrance, and that's restlessness. The mind in turmoil. And even though a lot of practice seems like the mind in turmoil, as we pay attention to it, it does have its own way of clearing itself out. We become familiar with it, and, and it does settle down. Reading, talking, and, and uh, taking in more information in an attempt to understand, or fix it, or explain it, does not lead to greater tranquility. But it does lead to greater agitation. So be really careful about when you feel agitated, when you feel really restless and, and just uh, in turmoil, not to go to a book for an answer. The answer you need can only be found in yourself. And outside of retreat, you've got the rest of your life to read those books, or the rest of your life before you ever came here. Give yourself the opportunity to be with it as best you can. And it will have its, um, it will sort itself out. But often we have to go through a period of tremendous tension and agitation before we can crack the nut, so to speak, or break open the seed of understanding of what's causing that tension. So restlessness is the fourth. The last hindrance or obstruction that I want to speak about tonight is the wanting mind. It's that feeling you have after 40 minutes in a 45-minute sitting. <laughs> or it's the feeling you have when you see on the board, you know, what's for lunch? German chocolate cake. <laughs> you know? Uh, one piece only. <laughs> Wanting more than you can have. Eh? We've all had that feeling. What is it? Where is it? What happens to it when we pay attention to it? Is it satisfied with one piece of cake? And so we have two. Is it satisfied then? Much of our life is driven by this feeling of wanting something else. Wanting things, you know, clothes and food, and wanting experience, movies and this and that. Wanting people, wanting this person or that person to be in certain relationships and to do certain things with. And we ourselves wanting to become someone else. Wanting, for most of us here, wanting to become enlightened, whatever that is. Or at least wanting to become mindful. Or wanting something other than the way things are. And, and the way things are when the wanting mind is present is wanting. And so we have to begin by recognizing the nature of wanting. There's nothing wrong with wanting, except that it's so painful, and it can't be satisfied. So you get a piece of cake. Okay. Then what? I want a glass of milk. Okay. You get a glass of milk, and then what? I want an alka seltzer. <laughs> okay. And then what? You know, it just on and on. And yet if we took, if we actually steadied the mind and turned it around and said, what is this experience of wanting? Where is it? 
Where is it in the body? Is it in the hands? Is it in the belly? Is it in the head? Is it in the feet? And what's it feel like? It too, like any other experience we have ever had, is fleeting. It doesn't last for very long. If we can be with it as it is, when it is, we'll see that it is impermanent. One thing comes, be with it. It's painful. The reason we have continually moved throughout our lives in order to get people and to get events and to become and to experience things is because wanting is so unpleasant. And we'll do anything to get away from it. We'll run our whole life. We'll run hundreds of lifetimes away from that feeling. Instead of just turning around once and looking at it or feeling it clearly, really letting ourselves burn consciously with the feeling of desire and let it go. We can do that. We can do that. But we need to recognize wanting is being present, locating it, and staying with it. Not being so easily duped into believing that we can get rid of it if we just, you know, off the side somewhere. Because it'll come back. But when we see it, when we learn how to be with and see through this filter of desire, the first time it's really hard. The second time it's just as hard. The third time, it's probably still really hard. The hundred thousandth time, it's easier. <laughs> but consider how many things you've wanted today. Probably a few thousand. You know, in a couple of days. You could, you, could, you could actually see through this thing called desire. And it's with little things in retreat like this. Now, about the perfume. <laughs> As I was going to speak earlier, you know we have this rule here at IMS, please do not wear scented products, shampoo, aftershave, whatever other things are scented. And some of us are so attached to our particular brand, mine's obsession by the way, <laughs> that we're going to use it anyway. That's attachment. The person sitting beside us says, he's got his obsession on again today. <laughs> Doesn't he know there's a rule? <laughs> Out of compassion for him, I'm going to write a note and put it on the board. Please do not wear your obsessions. Meta. <laughs> Here we see all five hindrances. <laughs> Attachment, aversion, confusion, delusion, restlessness. Is to begin to recognize these five qualities of mind. Much of our practice is recognizing them in the early days of practice. And by that I mean, you know, the first 20 or 30 years. Much of our practice is just recognizing the very gross forms of these hindrances and obstructions and the very subtle forms of hindrances and obstructions. They are ubiquitous. They're just everywhere. And if you, if you can just learn these five words and learn to recognize doubt, sleepiness, desire, aversion, restlessness, then we can begin to recognize them, and then we can begin to work with them in our practice. We don't have to be victimized by them. We don't have to feel defeated by them. We can work with them. We can acknowledge them. We can approach them. We can touch them. We can feel them. 
we don't need to be defeated. And so as you continue your practice this evening, tomorrow, ask yourself every so often, what hindrance, if any, is present right now? Without just being moved and manipulated by it, recognize it and work with it. Use some skillful reflection or some direct antidote, or develop the curiosity and the investigation of it. See what you can do. Let's just sit for a minute. Let this settle down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.